All right. Great to be with you this morning. My name is Morgan, our lead pastor, and uh, it is good to worship and celebrate with you all this morning. Uh, if you would, we turn over to Mark chapter four, 5. There's Bibles in the backs of your pews. We are traveling in the life of Jesus together, and I need to know, where are my Stranger Things fans out there? Do I have any of those? Anyone? Yes. Awesome. Now, this past 4th of July, uh, the third season, much anticipated, came out. Don't worry, Jacob. I'm not going to blow anything for you. Don't worry, buddy. And I was once more enthralled uh, by this season. Now, I'm not a huge like sci-fi guy uh, normally. Um, sometimes I like a few, but I'm not huge. But this series, I've been hooked on. I love the nostalgia of the 80s, the character development, the intriguing and comical plot line. So I'm all about Stranger Things. And uh, in these three seasons, there's always some form of a seemingly unconquerable monster. Cue the dude on the left there, right? And uh, usually a pretty fantastic climax where the character Eleven and her gang of friends and, and then someone or someones will unexpectedly sacrifice their life to save everyone else's life and to conquer said monster. And uh, so really in this series, I think there are some pretty solid Christian redemptive overtones and themes throughout. But every time it is certainly strange. So if you're not familiar with it, you got to know that. And this morning... In the life of Jesus, we are going to run into a Stranger Things type of story, okay? Uh, so as we travel and as we apprentice together in the life of Jesus, uh, just know we're headed into a strange one. If you've been traveling with us, we are uh, about 10 weeks into the life and mission of Jesus. We left off at the end of chapter 4 of Mark, where uh, if you remember that story two weeks ago, Jesus was exhausted. He had spent a whole day teaching. He had spent a whole day uh, performing miracles and healings, and all of a sudden he says, all right, guys, it's time to hop in a boat, and they go over to the other side of Galilee. And uh, Jesus takes a snooze because he's exhausted, and a huge storm comes, and they are terrified, and Jesus calms that storm. He rebukes the storm, and then rebukes his disciples. And uh, so as they wake up, they are kind of left with this hanging question, who is this man? Who is this man who the words, the wind and waves obey? And so this morning, we're into a strange story. We're on the heels of that. And what we're going to get this morning is actually the why. Like, why did Jesus go across the lake? Why did he endure that storm? Why did all that happen? And in this very specific story that answers the why, there are kind of four movements to the narrative. So here's how we're going to travel through it. Uh, their first is desperation. You're going to see that in this narrative. Two, we're going to see a confrontation. Three, we're going to travel through a climactic victory. And then finally, four is the point of it all. And you're going to catch that. So you're going to need to travel with me for the point of it all. So here we go. We, my hope is that you might identify with parts of this narrative and even the whole of that flow. So here we are, Mark chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of a boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones. So the first movement in the narrative is this movement of desperation. 
And uh, it's pretty obvious why, right? Uh, we're encountering a person here. Jesus takes his disciples on the other side of, of Galilee into the Gerasenes, which is kind of basically on the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a big deal because what we're stepping into is outside of Israel, all right? And so Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, did not interact a ton, all right? Jews would kind of try to keep their distance. And in contrast, in contrast to that, Jesus is making a special trip. He is making a special trip to encounter non-Jews. And so Jesus is already conveying God's heart for all people. That God's heart is for all people, uh, that he loved hurting people and he loved all of them and would even go out to this man who is clearly hurting. Uh, the man is known to have an impure spirit within him. Uh, he is also known as somebody who was living in the tombs, which again, the tombs would have been an unclean place for Jews. And so if you notice in the story, Jesus' disciples are not mentioned. They were in that boat, but they don't get out. All right, this man is not only in the tombs, he at time has been chained. It seems implied that his community exiles him out there, right? So he's isolated. And then they've at times tried to chain him down, but whatever this impure spirit is, he's so strong that he breaks them off at times. And so they can't hold him down. Uh, then it's also noted that he is daily crying out and cutting himself with stones. So we see a man who's isolated, pushed out of society in the margins, and anyone regularly living in the tombs clearly has a challenging life. Imagine being so feared by your community that you'd be put somewhere and not allowed to go other places and hidden from, and that you've even been chained down, I mean literally chained down at times. This man has hit rock bottom. Right? So his suffering is rather immense and it's rather obvious. This man is in a place of desperation. And so our first pause in this part of the narrative is to go, are you in a place of desperation? Are you currently feeling desperate? And uh, you might be here and, and you might be feeling desperate and yet nobody knows. Like, not like this man. This man, everybody knew his desperation, but you might be here and uh, you seem happy, you seem engaged on the outside, and yet on the inside, you have places of desperation. You have places of hurt and hidden realities that no one else knows about. Uh, currently, there are swirling conversations around mental health in our country, and for extremely good reasons. Uh, today, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., and it roughly affects 40 million people, adults, 40 million adults in our countries. That's one in five, and that's according to Medical News Today. Uh, according to Shana Ali of Psychology Today, in the last 50 years, rates of loneliness have doubled in the U.S. In a survey of 20,000 American adults, that's a large survey, uh, over the last 50 years it's doubled. It was found that almost half of respondents reported feeling alone, left out, and isolated. Further, one in four Americans share that they rarely feel understood, and one in five people believe they rarely or never feel close to other people. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, suicide is the second leading cause of death. Look at these ages, ages 10 to 34. And one in five adults experience mental illness each year. And yet, just 43% of adults with mental illness received some form of treatment in 2018. That's according to USA Today. Uh, recently, in the evangelical world, um, there have been a few pastors, actually a couple pastors, that have uh, recently committed suicide. They were open about some of their mental health issues, so they weren't alone completely. Um, but it's painful, and it's tragic that those types of things are happening, and these are not easy conversations to enter into. Uh, what the reality is, is that we have an increasing culture uh, that is full of anxiety, worry, 
depression and isolation that is increasing drastically. And so what I do want to just pause to say is I want to encourage you, uh, whether you're here connecting with us online, whether you're here in this room, uh, if I know you by name, please, regardless, don't fall victim to being isolated. Like, don't fall victim to suffering on your own. There is a prevailing culture of comparison uh, that's probably social media infused, a culture that is crippling because of comparison. Uh, There's a culture where we heap shame on ourselves because we say, look, I'm seeing other people's lives and my life isn't as... David, there we are. Cool. Uh, I hope that'll have some leash. Nope. It doesn't. How about that? Uh, Let's see if you've got the other one. We'll figure it out. I can speak from here. I'll be good. There we are. Boom. My bad. All right. So, in a really intense moment, I apologize for having to do that. Uh, But here's here's the thing. If you are in that place of desperation... My encouragement today is that you, uh, or even if you think you're headed there, right? Uh, My encouragement is that you would not hang out in the tombs and in isolation, right? That you wouldn't hang out there. Uh, That instead you would um, know that you're a part of a people and a place where you can be real, where you can be authentic, and where you can begin to come out, right? And simply it's just, hey, I need some help, right? It's that first conversation. It's that first uh, statement that you speak and that we would be a people that also offers that type of space to others, that we are the type of people that would go across the Sea of Galilee like Jesus did to others who are hurting and in need. And uh, just as a story recently, you know, over the last two weeks in, in our discipleship huddle, uh, we've seen some experience, we've experienced some beautiful moments. Uh, one of the many kingdom commands in the New Testament is this from James 5. It says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And if you catch this here, this is actually a command that you can't do on your own. Isn't that amazing? This is a a, a command here to confess your sins to other people. And and it's really powerful because it's not just recognizing that there's vertical connection with God, that there is this horizontal, we call it our in connection in spiritual family with other people that is needed. And there's power that when we speak that out to other people, that God does something in the horizontal as well as the vertical. And so two weeks ago in our discipleship, we just, we read this scripture and we actually did it. We actually opened ourselves up to each other. We confessed. We talked for more than an hour. Uh, We prayed on our knees in my basement. We experienced healing. We experienced relief. We experienced just a little taste of the kingdom. And so if you're here and you're dealing with mental illness, I am not saying that that's a sin. What I am saying is we have to have people and places where we can confess just deep struggles that maybe are not our fault per se or not a sin. And then yes, there are our sins that we do also need to name and open up and confess about. So are you in a place of desperation? If so, it's okay. Like it's okay to be hurting. That's all right. Um, You don't have to have it all together. None of us did a week and a half ago in my basement. Uh, And yet that's what we need to do is would you trust someone to take that next step to just open up to someone in and around here? Name the isolation, name that brokenness, and confession is the way we do that. It's opening up. All right. 
So our second piece in the narrative is confrontation. So we've got desperation and we've got confrontation. Verse 6, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So, as we engage this increasingly weird passage, all right, so I'm naming that. Uh, I told you it was weird. We need a little bit of a word on the demonic. So, in the worldview of Jesus and in the worldview of those who take on the mental maps of Jesus, there is space for the supernatural. So the supernatural realm in the scriptures in numerous places names that both angels, demons, other types of beings, and other cosmic realities are actually present and actually have effect on the course of human history. And so again, if we trust Jesus' mental maps as followers of Jesus, we should also make space for uh, the supernatural and all that that might entail. Uh, Again, I know that according to the Western world and and the secular mind and, and those sorts of things, this all sounds nuts. So I get that. I want to name that. And I would say even in my earlier years of following Jesus, I I had this thing, well, I guess if the Bible says so, okay. It would have made space in some way. But the practical reality is I also thought this is kind of crazy. Like I'm not sure I really deep down believe in that. And so I find that even for people who identify as a follower of Jesus, if you ask them probing questions, oftentimes it's like, "Ah, I'm not so sure about this. And so what we have here in this story, and what we've seen at other places in the life of Jesus, according to Mark, is not a metaphorical situation. What's naming here is Jesus confronting and interacting with real beings named here as a legion of demons. So does that mean that demon possession can happen today? Yes. Yes, the, the, paint, the picture painted in the scriptures would say absolutely. And is this only a belief of superstitious or ignorant or non-rational cultures? No. I believe it's actually arrogant to think that. Uh, oh, those poor people 2,000 years ago who thought there were such things as demons. Or even worse, oh, those poor people who still believe that today if we could only liberate ourselves from such thinking, right? That is the culture around us. And so I just want to argue that the origin of these beliefs is not out of a place of superstition. It's out of a place of a philosophical view that is saying a priori, right, beforehand, that there is no supernatural. Like the things that would make this off the table is a choice of naturalism. So I want to encourage you, don't cower if you have that view. And if you're not sure about these things, if you're not sure about supernatural, I would just say, would you be open-handed this morning? And do you have a view that's shutting down the supernatural before the conversation begins? So let's go back to this interaction. We have a man here possessed. And he runs and he bows and worships. And yet he screams and protests all the the same time. So there's this kind of tug of war within him. The passage gets tricky because it's hard to tell who's speaking. Is it the man? Is it the demons within him? Who's worshiping? Who's bowing? Who's saying that Jesus, you are the son of the most high God, which is this very high proclamation. But regardless of the confusion, Jesus then speaks directly to this legion of demons. Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And you would think that might be the end of it, right? If we, just, if we take what happened in Mark 4 when he speaks, be quiet and still, the storm stops. And yet that's not what happens here. Jesus keeps talking further. Verse 9, what is your name? 
My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And there's a fascinating word I want you all to note right now. It's this word, beg. The demons begin to beg Jesus for something. And so here, I again want to pause for a second. Despite the confusion, Jesus confronts these demons. And oftentimes, in our lives as well, Jesus wants to speak directly to the stuff within us, to the things we are holding on to, something that he wants to root out in us. And no, I am not saying that anyone here is currently possessed with a demon, okay? So I want to be clear on that. Uh, But most of this stuff is not some form of demon possession. The vast majority is not that at all. But it is sin, it is brokenness, it is hang up. It is something in our lives that we just recognize this is not all that God has for us. And Jesus regularly wants to speak into us. Human beings are a complex tapestry of social, emotional, mental, spiritual, physical realities. And God wants to speak to those things. And so whatever the overlapping reality are, Jesus wants to speak to them. So I want to pause in this narrative of confrontation. Do you sense that Jesus might want to confront something in you this morning. You sense there might be something that uh, God wants to heal, that he wants to speak to, that he wants to confront, and it's a key question. So if I go back to our huddle, uh, that, that a week and a half ago we we're confessing this past Wednesday, we took the next step, which is to simply confront each other. It's the beginning, the journey of repenting and believing where you change a thought and you change a pattern of behavior, right? And and so we confront each other with love and it's the type of love that says, I love you just as you are where you are right now. No strings attached, no movement. And yet it's also a type of love that says, if I love you that much, I'm also gonna want you to take some steps because that is what's actually loving and caring for your life. And man, once more, kingdom is breaking in as some of those men are saying, God, what do you wanna do? What are you confronting in me and what do you want me to do now? And so if you're here and you sense in your life, in your heart, in your attitudes, in your words, something that needs to change, I want to encourage you uh, to take a step. Uh, One of the best rhythms in my life right now is I'm in some counseling two or three times a month. It is good for my life. It is good for my marriage. It is good for my parenting. It is good for everything. It's a part of my healing right now, and it is healthy. Uh, And I'm regularly, the, the, the health comes out of being regularly confronted with your stuff, right? It is good news for my life. And so Jesus wants to confront us this morning. Now, here we go. He's going to go to work, and he confronts this man for, for the demoniac in him, and we're going to see the climactic victory. Here we go. Third part of the narrative. Verse 11, a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus. There's that word again. Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. He gave them permission. And the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. What in the world is with these pigs? Like, I'm going to call up Stranger Things. I've got a narrative for them, okay? This is a very weird story. It's a new episode coming. Uh, And so just in case you're snoozing with me, can we say this together? Jesus did what? All right, one, two, three. Jesus did what? That's right, okay? This is weird. Pigs are going off the side of a cliff and into the Lake of Galilee. So these pigs here are important for a number of reasons. 
number of reasons. Uh, again, we are in a non-Jewish land, in a Gentile land, uh, and Jews did not eat pigs. Remember, it's so fascinating. His disciples are still in the boat. Like, we don't hear anything from them, possibly because of the tombs nearby, possibly because of all the pigs nearby. Now, in this land, it's possible that there's some pig idolatry, like an idolization of pigs. Um, that's that's t potentially on the table. But either way, we have a mini economy. Right? We are in a rural community. We're talking 2,000 pigs going off into a cliff. This is a big deal. There is a ton of wealth going on here. And, and we have a wild situation where demons are begging Jesus like, hey, send us into those pigs. And Jesus basically says, sure. Like he allows them. He, he says he gives them permission. And I'm a little bit weirded out here. What in the world is going on? Here's what author and scholar N.T. Wright summarizes. Basically, Jesus has indeed come to put the forces of evil to flight. And what happens to these demon-entering pigs and driving them into the lake is a sign of what Jesus will do in his death and resurrection with all evil of whatever sort. What seems really random and goofy Jesus is giving a foretaste of the kingdom of God. This aspect of them diving off a cliff, drowning in the lake, is what Jesus would do with his own life. He was willing to take on all the demonic and all opposition to himself on the cross, die, and then raise from the dead, showing that he has victory over it. And in this moment, he is giving them a foretaste of what he would do on the cross. And I would say even furthermore, into future redemptive history, what Jesus will do, God is going to bring all wrongs and right them. That's when Jesus comes a second time. He's going to take up this messed up tapestry of sin and death in all that we see out there and all that we see in our own selves. And he's going to drown it. Like he's going to get rid of it. And so we're stuck in this tension-filled reality that Jesus' kingdom is truly here, that it's breaking into this world, and yet it is not fully here. But there is a day when it will be fully here. And Jesus is giving a foretaste of that. And so 2,000 pigs off the cliff into this water, and the dust settles. We see this amazing victory, this foretaste that's happening. And Jesus has uh, done a bit of earth shaking. So this is still part of the climax. Look what happens as the dust settles. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. This is a wild conclusion. If we go back to verse 14 here, this man is no longer crying out. He's not thrashing. He's not cutting. He's finally under control. And it's, the text implies that it's been a long time since this man had freedom. This has been a long time coming. And he's sitting there and he's in his right mind. And others are there to attest to it. Those who are taking care of this massive uh, flock of pigs, if you will. Or I don't know, what do you call a bunch of pigs? A herd of pigs. There we are. Uh, and, and as they're taking care of him, they saw what had happened. And they're saying, look, uh, this is what went down. And he's all good. And we, these pigs are gone. And we have a mini economic collapse on our hands. And this collapse was unapologetically initiated by this Jesus of Nazareth. And, and they are all 
afraid. And so they kind of look at like the barren field where the pigs were and they look back at this guy and he's okay. And they look back at the field and they look back at this guy and they're just like, Jesus, can you leave? Like, we don't know how to make sense of what is going on here. They plead with him to leave. And here's what's fascinating about that word. It actually should be the word beg. It is the same word that we have seen. So play a game with me, if you will. Let's track the begs. So in verse 10, the demons first beg Jesus, please let us hang out in this area. And Jesus says, sounds good. You got it. Then they see the pigs and they say, hey, Jesus, would you let us go into those pigs? And Jesus says, yep, sounds good. Go for it. Then the people of the village who cannot make sense of this wild scenario, they all they know is that there's no more bacon for their breakfast and they don't know what eggs taste like without bacon on the side. And they are freaking out. And so they beg Jesus to leave. And so Jesus is about to leave. Here's the point of it all. Here's the point of it all. Don't miss this. Verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with them. And there's our favorite word again. This is the fourth time. Now, if you get into this scene, imagine being that man, having your life instantaneously transformed. He is in his right mind for the first time in a long time. And this man, Jesus, who had endured a storm on the Lake of Galilee, who brought along his goofy, cowering disciples that we don't hear anything about, the guy who had just healed this man, who had been utterly desperate and broken, and who had just authoritatively, yet strangely, cast those demons into those pigs, sent them over the side. This guy, who should have been invited in, yet he is begged. He is begging, Jesus, I just want to be with you. Like, you have utterly transformed my life. I just want to be with you. Can I keep hanging out? And you can hear the tenderness and the vulnerability of this act. Jesus, let me go with you. I've been in anguish and you have rescued me. And so we should expect Jesus to say, sure thing, right? Sounds good. And that's not what Jesus says. Verse 19, Jesus did not let him. But he said, go home to your people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus has had said yes to everything that has begged him so far in this narrative, and he says no. Isn't that wild? Like the one person who is seeking after Jesus here, everyone is in opposition. He says, sure, sure, sure. And then he says, no. And imagine Jesus saying this tenderly and yet firmly, I have kingdom work for you. Go tell your hometown. Go tell them what the Lord has done, how he has had mercy on you. And I'm sure there was a sense of disappointment for this man in that moment. I'm sure there must have been a sting in his next step as he turns away from the boat and begins to walk on. Maybe there were many temptations to head back to those tombs. Great, I've been cast out by another person. Uh, And yet he doesn't do that. We see here in verse 20, the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Here's the point of it all. Jesus wants to move us from isolation and desperation. And he wants to transform us into wounded healers. Wounded healers who begin to proclaim the mercies of God, the kingdom of God. And guess what? Jesus models something here that that honestly almost sounds blasphemous. He's basically saying to this man, you're going to reach people in this area better than I will. 
And I don't really believe that's the case. Like if Jesus wanted to do stuff there, he could have, right? And and at the same time, it's Jesus' work that gives this man any credit. It's his power. It's his mercy. The only reason this man has a story is because of Jesus. Of course, it is still Jesus working, uh, reaching people there. But that's how Jesus regularly works in our lives. It's you and your story. It's me and my story. It's us and our story. That that's what Jesus begins to do. And there really are people that will only be reached by you and your story. I believe that that's how God chooses to work for whatever reason. And it's not out of some messianic complex like, oh, I'm going to be the bearer of everything. No, it's just simply that Jesus chooses to work in and through his people. And if you notice, this man goes far beyond just his hometown. The Decapolis is called that because it's actually 10 cities. It's an entire region outside of Israel, 10 cities. This man went far beyond what Jesus originally told him to do, and the people are amazed. Sir, do you believe this is for you this morning? Do you believe this? Because I do. And I believe that on your behalf, even if you don't yet fully believe it. And the question is, are you ready to share your story? Because as we land this ship this morning. I know there's a lot of fear in saying, wow, like what has God done for me and how do I share that with others? I know that produces some fear, some challenge potentially in us. And so I want to take our last few minutes to simply encourage you. And so would you pull out a phone or would you pull out something to write with? Something simple. This is super simple. What does it look like to share our story? I want to, I want you first to begin by identifying a current struggle in your life. Like what is a current struggle, a challenge, a place in your life where you know you have not yet arrived? Like where's a place in your life you're saying, I know I haven't arrived. And this first step, I, I just call it identify, right? When we think of what does it look like for us to share our stories, we first need to identify. And for me, I'm just regularly convicted of hard parenting moments of moments where I know uh, that there is lots of stressful situations of a nightly confusion for me on how to get Luke to choose to go to bed on his own without having to hang over some sort of consequence, right? That seems to be our pattern. Uh, And and then I turn into this crabby, whiny, annoying Morgan, which I don't like. And and that's where I'm at. And I have to own that. And I have to miss that, that I nearly daily have to struggle with like, how do I get my four-year-old son to want to go to bed without 19 times out of his bed, right? And Luke's four, like it's all good. It's not a slight against him. It's way more about what's going on in me in these moments. And in those moments, I'm regularly needing Jesus to help me. So do you have a problem? Do you have a challenge? Oh, you're perfect. Okay, we're good then. We we can just kind of close up shop, all right? Good, just me? Okay, all right. So the first thing is just identifying where is a place you struggle. And step two is this, this is it. Gospel yourself. And what that means is, what is the good news to you in this moment? Like, not broadly speaking, but I'm saying in this very moment, when I am stressed out, Morgan, what is the good news when Luke is giggling, laughing, acting out, goofing around, when my patience is at my end, when I'm trying to lovingly connect with him and yet struggling to do so, when I'm feeling like I'm a terrible parent and I don't understand why Luke won't simply do things with me kindly asking, I have to turn into crabby, whiny Morgan, I discovered this little identity nugget in counseling. Here's the good news to me. That God the Father still fathers me when I laugh in his face. That the good news to me is that I'm still his beloved child even when I mess up getting angry. 
But the good news to me is that there's a God who works in and through perseverance to develop my character, to start producing hope in me. And it only really comes in these moments of challenge. There's a direction and that there's a movement. It's this word telos, that I'm not stuck where I am, that I can actually move more and more towards Jesus and towards his kingdom. And it really only happens through these many trials. The good news to me is that when I mess up connection with my heavenly father, he still wants connection with me. The good news is that my identity as a dad does not rise and fall with the way my child chooses to respond or not. And sometimes, thankfully, a bit increasingly more as I'm learning to navigate these waters, I'm getting hope and encouragement and strength in that very real moment. And so, that's something that others can relate to, right? Like, I'm not an arrived parent. I have steps to take. And Jesus is the one I'm trusting to learn how to do it. That's as simple as it is. Identify a struggle and learn how to say, what is the good news to me in this moment? And to offer that to, to others. Because guess who the hero is? It's, it's Jesus. It's him invading my life and giving me hope when I'm a mess. And I'm learning to trust him. And you all have similar stories. And so my encouragement this morning, don't go to bed tonight without gospeling yourself without identifying, because it does take some work to say, hey, here's my challenge. That part's the easy part usually. Now, now, what is actually the good news to me right now in this moment? Don't go to bed tonight without gospeling yourself because Jesus wants you to share your story with others. And there will be people who come to faith in this Jesus of Nazareth because of how you're learning to trust him amidst the challenge. Uh, and, and you just might find yourself activated and mobilized on mission just as this man was. And numerous cities were transformed in the process. You do not do this alone. We are a people who experience and proclaim good news together. So gospel yourself and allow us to speak the gospel over you as well. Would you pray with us?